17 Seconds is The Cure's second album, but really it's considered their first. It is the beginning of The Cure as it came to be known. Uh, and certainly Robert Smith was never happy with their debut album, Three Imaginary Boys. 17 Seconds is the beginning of Smith pulling away from Chris Perry. Uh, his manager, who had signed The Cure and given them their own sub-imprint of Polydor Fiction Records. 17 Seconds is a very clear shift in direction away from the kind of bedroom John Lennon, uh, what they called Southern Buzzcocks pop of the best stuff that Smith had written, you know, from the age of about 16, 17 to 19. You're talking about Boys Don't Cry, 10:15 on a Saturday night. Uh, the title track, Three Imaginary Boys, is uh, still used to close concerts over the last 40-plus years. And by the time you get to Jumping Someone Else's Train, which is a non-album single at the very end of the original Cure lineup's peak period, you know, you're starting to almost get into like the jam territory in terms of the energy that's behind that song. And the fact that it's about fashion, you know, doesn't help there. And what really doesn't help is, as I mentioned in the podcast about Three Imaginary Boys, the Cure's debut album, they were recording it at the same time as the jam. <laughs> we're recording, uh, I believe, All Mod Cons. Maybe it was After Fact, I can't remember. But um, they were in Morgan Studios. This is where Chris Perry had you know, ensconced all of his young bands. Uh, and their chosen producer was a guy called Mike Hedges. Uh, Hedges is as well known for having recorded these early Cure albums as he is for having done Susie and the Banshees' uh, first great records. And that's really, you know, the Susie piece of it, the fact that Susie is also signed by Chris Perry, also has their own in-house sub-imprint. The twinning of The Cure and Susie and the Banshees and the popular consciousness is right out of the gate. After a one-month headlining tour in mid-1979 to support Three Imaginary Boys, The Cure immediately go out on the road opening for Susie and the Banshees on the Join Hands tour. And infamously, uh, Kenny Morris and John McKay, the guitarist and the drummer, Quit. They freaked out. They were, you know, really irritated with the kind of egomania that was going along with Severin and Susie in particular. All the attention was always on them, and obviously, you know, Sue was already a huge celebrity uh, in a way that no one except for Johnny Rotten, John Lydon, had become out of punk. I mean, it's Billy Idol wasn't even really a big name. Gen X had a couple of hits in England, but... You know, the, the two biggest pillars of punk rock by far are Rotten and Sue. And Robert Smith is, you know, famously, you know, derided sometimes, even by Sue herself, as something of a middle-class kid. He comes from a good family, you know, um, him and Lowell and, and everyone else in the Cure's orbit grew up in a new town in Crawley, Sussex. And so this exposure he has, he goes from daydreaming, right? He's listening to records. What really shapes 17 Seconds is tough to say. A lot of critics want this record to be its own sort of universe. And what I come back to there is, is what was this? You know, is 17 Seconds this incredible, prescient, genius expression of some, you know, barely more than a teenage kid? Uh, or can it be sort of reconstituted if you look at the influences that were around at the time? And I think you really have to split that right down the line and say it's both. You know, two things happen when Robert Smith gets out into the world. He's immediately next to 
the most famous person coming out of punk rock, Susie Sue. And she really takes them under her wing, to be honest. Robert Smith knows nothing about the media. They're, they're kind of scruffy, you know, suburban boys. If you look at pictures of Lowell and Michael Dempsey and Robert when they're on tour with the Banshees, I mean, God, it looks like they're wearing secondhand clothes. They, there's no image. There's nothing going on here. Robert trying to fit in with the Banshees, the only thing he could do, he used to wear an overcoat. That was like his costume to try and fit in with the Banshees. You know, early on, they were still filtering through the punk uh, identity and the punk clothes, for sure, that, that Susie had made so famous. You know, Robert Smith's education is very much a trial by fire. He goes out touring, you know, Boys Don't Cry, these, these daydream pop songs, and he ends up opening for some of the snottiest, most pretentious art school acts you could imagine. He opens for Wire, you know, case in point, a band I love, but, you know, who are self-effacingly um, very self-aware of the fact that they were complete student toss. Like, you know, their attitude was so obnoxious. They ended up backing it up with three of the best albums, like, ever. But, um, you know, they were pretty hopelessly full of shit. I mean, they were, they, were, they were wanting to move on from pop records and start doing art happenings and all this bullshit. So you have that, right? And then you have the sort of inscrutable, uh, extremely working class Mancunians in Joy Division, also from Salford. But the whole thing about Joy Division's influence over Robert Smith's dramatic shift into this darker period they call the trilogy, 17 Seconds, Faith, and Pornography. There's a lot more that doesn't get discussed there. This is it's not like idol worship. This isn't Robert Smith, you know, thinking Ian Curtis is this, you know, tortured, lost soul, martyr. Smith is a trained musician. He grew up with the Sunday piano around the house. His, his sister was a fairly accomplished pianist. The, the family had a Hammond organ in the house is what he demoed 17 seconds on. This guy was surrounded by music in that kind of, you know, country Sunday uh, English way. Uh, and he was quite good at it. He was a very good guitarist. So when you, when you tear apart technically, even on an album as minimal, a word that is tediously, endlessly associated with 17 seconds, the minimalism is not structural. It's, you know, sonic. Where when you look at Joy Division, they're not trained musicians at all. They're learning to play with stickers on their guitar necks. And so when you break apart a Joy Division song, for example, everybody's sort of got a lick in there. Barney's got it. Bernard Sumner's got a little guitar flourish. Peter Hook's got probably the driving melody in the bass. Then, of course, you know, Steve Morris is playing some kind of really um, premeditated structural beat. You know, he used to make the joke his dream was to be a drum machine. He was all about patterns. And, you know, Ian Curtis is famously sort of looked at as a ringleader in the studio or in rehearsals, pointing at them and saying, you know, I like that bit, I like that bit. And it all comes together. That's why Joy Division is endlessly called an atmospheric band, because the, the constituent parts aren't really that great on their own. It's not until they all come together and you get Martin Hannett, one of the most singular geniuses in, in production, music production at that time, that this atmosphere is sort of architected. And, and the, you know, that's borne out in, in things Peter Hook and Bernard Sumner have said about the Hannett Records as Joy Division, that they were a little bit put, you know, put off by how much he injected himself, inserted himself into the kind of sonic palette of Joy Division. But it would never have happened without him. You know, they would have been more of a Susie and the Banshees grading. You know, if you listen to those Warsaw demos they did before Unknown Pleasures, there's a lot that makes up Joy Division. And so when you pull it apart, it actually kind of falls apart. That's not the case with The Cure and with Robert Smith because of that, you know, grounded classic songwriting education. 
And so one of the interesting things about 70 Seconds to me is that for a lot of kids, this is an album that got them excited to play music because you could hear the parts and figure them out and play them. And, and I don't think that any critic really talks about 17 Seconds in this way. I only have like one guitar left because I gave them all away to other bands and people who are still touring and playing. Um, so it doesn't even really stay in tune, you know? But like every kid who hears a forest, right? That, that, that spawned a generation of bass players. And as much as like Sid Vicious's looks, everyone in The Cure was wearing black leather jackets like too also at this point. Like they, there's something so embarrassing and acutely naive about the struggle to find some sort of look in these three years leading up to Robert Smith becoming Robert Smith, you know, in about 1983, 84. If you look at the looks they have going on, they're just so disconnected, hilarious, kind of silly. And, and I mean, Smith, he, he basically at this point, Elvis Costello is still a huge influence on him. That's why he bought the cream and maroon jazz master that he plays on 17 Seconds, the Fender jazz master, because he thought it looked so fucking cool on Elvis Costello. It's probably also why he shaved his head and stopped being a long hair because, you know, that was part of some of the punky ethos at that time. You know, it's a songbook thing. It's like 17 Seconds is two chords, uh, the title song. Smith is obsessed with one chord. It's a bar chord on 17 seconds. He's constantly playing an F, an open F bar chord. Like this chord is all over 17 seconds. Having an instrumental intro called a reflection is like the height of pretense. I mean, he's really, like Smith does not care about the catalog building. He is done with Three Imaginary Boys and he wants to make a clean break. And this arty opening, you know, guitar and piano piece, a reflection is um, about as dramatic an indication of, you know, shutting one door and opening another as you get in the catalog of, of almost any artist. You know, when I was talking about Joy Division, like, Think about a song like Heart and Soul, right? It's just like there's this three-note bass line. It's like... There's, there's almost nothing to it, right? And then the guitar is just a drone just vamping on two notes on a D minor. I mean, this is like a Joni Mitchell chord. I mean, this is like a Bob Dylan folk chord. But you put it through the flange, you put it through the room reflections, Martin Hannick gets his hands on, and all of a sudden it's like this incredibly powerful, droning, just emotional thing. Seventeen seconds is two chords. It's A minor and F. Like, you know, M is three chords. It's E minor, C, with a pull-off on the uh, G on the, on the high E.
I remember, I mean, I remember sitting in a snowstorm, which funnily enough, I am right now, uh, and working out in your house. Like, because it was, I just, there was a version on, on concert, the B-side of concert in 84, Curiosity, had this amazing version that was like a little bit faster, and Lowell hits the kick on every beat. So it's got this like driving thunk, 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 thunk. Yeah, all my all my Cure obsessed friends preferred that live version, which I think it ended up on the deluxe reissue of 17 Seconds anyway. But I spent like yeah, I think I spent like half a Sunday in the snow in my room just working out you know this simple little three note thing um, from in your house. And like even the even the intro to a forest too is just like. You can like figure it out. And the, in the goth of the pop music sense is endlessly lobbed at the cure and Smith invited it, you know, certainly from even faith forward. Uh, but the word gothic and the, you know, the intention with that word as it relates to art, that's a whole different thing. You know, if you think of England in January when this was recorded, you think of the great gray Anglican landscapes, the, the thatches of, of centuries-old trees and underbrush, you know, growing together, frosted with snow, a light snow maybe, and this, you know, giant field with this unending gray sky and all that. You know, that, that's all over this record. And one of the main places that you hear it is those distant, transient sort of echoes and second tracks and, and vocal, you know, sort of coups that Smith has layered in and out of here. Secrets, the third song, uh, is very strong with this. There's a lot of falling away from the sort of focal point of the, the audio. If you think about like where, where the stereo space triangulates, the focal point of the song, you know, there's a lot of stuff that falls away from there or sort of glides, you know, past you in the distance. You know, that's right there at the beginning with the opening salvo, that instrumental piece of reflection. Um, but, it, you know, it immediately sort of goes away with play for today. And it's it's sort of like, well, OK, was that just a, you know, intro? And now we're back to more this, you know, this sounds sort of like jumping someone else's train part two, you know, or, or like Gary Newman doing jumping someone else's train. The overdone compression on the cymbals, the flanging. Uh, and and that you know synthetic clap that that is you know becomes so signature. There's not as much sonic sort of playing around with play for today because it's clearly intended to be potentially a single. When you get to secrets and in your house, that's that that sort of gothic distant 
pensive, um, you know, quite beautiful, um, playing around with space. And, and those two to me are in terms of production, even more than A Forest and Play For Today, which are clearly the most finessed pop productions on the record. Uh, those two, Secrets and In Your House, they're, they're absolute sister songs, uh, very similar, you know, sparse. One has a heavy piano underscoring the bar chords, it's chugging, you know, again, um, simplistic but, but very unique use of a bar chord with the jazz master in, in the top switching. People go up and down about the title track, 17 Seconds. I always loved the, the simplicity of that title track, 17 Seconds. And then, you know, later when we get to Faith, there's an a infamous sort of their Blue Monday, uh, which is Carnage Visors, um, which was intended very much the same way New Order intended Blue Monday to replace an opening act. So instead of having an opening act, you would watch a film that Simon Gallup's brother made with a 30-minute, you know, drum machine instrumental of depressing guitar. <laughs> um, the, the title track here, 17 Seconds, is in some ways a precursor to that. It's, a, it's got a very almost military sort of ballad tempo to it. Very strange, honestly. It, it's, it's, a, it's certainly an obsessed song. It, it's something where you can hear that Smith is obsessed with a particular tempo, that down tempo, you know, strumming. It really, it really is unlike anything else on the record. It's an A minor. I mean, he's a big fan of A minors and E minors. Um, a minor to F, and he, he just, it's just, it's, it's the insistent, almost ambient, meditative aspect. Even though these are, these are basic, you know, learn to play guitar chords, there's just something about sticking to it and just the, the repetition of that. He's got these pieces, but he wants to milk every, you know, every waveform out of each ringing string. There's a completeness to what's captured. And, and if you think about the keyboards, the synths, um, this is, I believe, I know they toured with it, but I think, I think this was also recorded with a Roland RS-09. I have that, actually. I have a Roland RS-09, um, which I, you know, of course got because I knew The Cure had gigged with it for 17 seconds in faith. And that thing is, I mean, wow, you plug that thing in and you can hear all of this. Um, but Matthew Hartley, who's joined the band with Simon Gallup now, coming out of the fallout with Michael Dempsey, who was not into this minimalism stuff at all. I mean, he was clearly an incredible bass player. I go on at length about his talent in the Three Imaginary Boys podcast. You know, I, and in that podcast, I also do the sort of, you know, armchair psychology 101 thing of saying that, you know, Dempsey wants to be something that Smith thinks is kind of tired and not cool anymore. Smith is interested in cool because he's been exposed to the music scene. And I think he would have to be honest with himself and say he wanted to do something more modern, you know, something more unique and fresh. That's about the nicest way you can put it. And that included the image. And Simon Gallup was the Sid Vicious looking, you know, guy who fit that perfectly. He was in, you know, a really shit punk band called Lockjaw, I think. And then he was in the Mag Spies, um, which was short for the Magazine Spies, with Matthew Hartley. I mean, Hartley just, you know, how's anybody who believes themselves to be a musician going to feel fulfilled playing one note on a synth? Nobody is. But Smith wanted the drone, and he was paying attention, I believe, to the sort of granularity of that old analog synth. He could hear the granularity of just the drone of single notes, and he wanted it. He wanted it to be a fabric in the music. You know, at this point, Robert Smith is still trying to build an audience, so he doesn't have any of that sort of arch persona or, or clout, you know, that he can throw around. His kind of um, typical young Turk sort of obstinance 
is all over this record. I mean, you look at the video for Play for Today, it's an all-white background, his head shaved. He looks. He might as well be Elvis Costello, right? He's just totally bored, staring off into the distance. I'm so bored, I'm so bored. You know, boredom is very chic at this time uh, in UK pop coming out of punk. And I think part of it is just the critics have so much control, you know, I've said before, over what's cool and what isn't cool. And that annoys him because he's just all about music and, uh, and all about creating his own musical statement. The old adage is 10 songs is an album, right? You don't need any more than that. Well, back then, you know, half an hour was an album. <laughs> and there's, this, this album is barely an EP. There, you know, there's, there's about maybe six songs here, I think, tops. Um, and then it's a bunch of experiments, you know. Three, uh, Final Sound, which, you know, apparently they say the Final Sound was supposed to be this, you know, David Bowie low, indulgent, eight-minute, you know, uh, <laughs> sort of movement or whatever. Um, I, I don't, <laughs> that, that's apocryphal. They say that they couldn't afford any more tape or they ran out of time, so they just left it when the tape ran out at the end of the song. That sounds like bullshit to me. Um, I think they were basically just closing the door on the session and like, guys, we're done. But, you know, the, the standout songs, obviously, A Forest is, is the big one. It is an extremely architected pop song. You don't hear pop song, four, four pop songs that are essentially like, still somewhat grounded in disco in a way. You don't hear big overtures at the beginning, you know, like two-minute introductions of guitar lines and synths and these these distant whooshing, you know, flanger sounds. Incredible atmospherics in this song. But, you know, even this song got stick. A lot of people said this is a bunch of Doctor Who bullshit. You know, too much sci-fi swooshing. And, and the video doesn't help because the video is like an early gamma filter, horrible camera spinning laser shot moves. And then they throw a switch and all of a sudden, you know, the alpha channel turns to bright pink and it's like this CMYK shit. And, you know, it's literally running through an inverse gamma filtered or hot filtered shot of a forest, right? You know, <laughs> MTV is so early days, but when you think about being an indie band, they, they don't have access to people who know what they're doing. It's adorable. It's not something you want to critique. It's not something you want to, you know, make fun of. You've got to embrace that this is 1980 and, like, at a fundamental technical level, nobody knows what the fuck they're doing with music videos or even film at this point. I mean, watch, go watch, like, the original BBC Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, you know? Like, I mean... The idea of trying to be creative, there were a lot of limitations there. So uh, I, I love it. I love all of it. I think it is such a brilliant moment in time. Uh, but I think it is important to consider that moment and not just think about what it sounds like. I mean, you hear 17 Seconds Today, it stands out. It's very original. It's a great record. Anybody that heard it today and loves music or is interested in you know, original music would probably react to it and think it's really good. But it is also of its time in so many ways, particularly those two songs, you know, Play for Today and Forest. The real standout to me isn't, you know, either of them. It's At Night. Uh, at Night is way off the reservation sonically from the rest of the record, as much as Three is. Three is a really ugly song. I, I never liked it. I never understood the point of it. It's a really unsuccessful experiment. And, and it points to one other influence, which is the arrival of Pink Floyd's The Wall. Pink Floyd's The Wall comes out right before they go into the studio to record this album. I mean, three weeks before they're booked to record 17 seconds, Pink Floyd's The Wall comes out. There's no underestimating the influence that would have had, even just casually, because of its total omnipotence and saturation as a work of unparalleled, you know, imperial rock excess. 
it certainly is important to consider the presence and, and coincidental release of the wall as it is Joy Division or Wire or, you know, Join Hands or Susie and the Banshees or, or you know, meeting all these people and becoming something of a, uh, a hard-drinking scene-ster backstage. That stuff's important, sure, but Robert Smith's still like 19, 20 when he's putting all this together. He's a fucking kid, and he always loved Pink Floyd. So, I mean, he doesn't love them in the way he did when he was a young teenager, they're, they're considered a bloated band by this point, clearly at the end of their, you know, majesty. But you, you do need to listen to these records as much as you listen to Wire and, and you know, Chairs Missing. And, and you think about the influence that these front men, these, these pretentious, stoic, dramatic front men had. You know, look at the, look at the recording, the, the um, Rock Palast recording, I think it was Rock Palast, of, of Wire doing Heartbeat. Colin Newman is just like, man, that motherfucker is ice. He's just sneering. He's just like, dude, I wish I could have ever been as fucking cool as that. I'm honest, I'm honest with you. Um, but you compare that, you know, look at Ian Curtis and he's just like off in the universe because he's got real world shit. Dude's got massive on, onset of epilepsy. It's getting worse and worse. He's having an affair. You know, emotionally, Ani Kanora always claimed it was never physically consummated. Who gives a shit? He's got a wife and a kid. He's getting torn all over the place. And his aspirations are like, you know, he's spoon feeding himself like the heaviest shit he can, you know? I mean, and, and Smith did too, but to be honest, this is a point where maybe there is a little bit of a knock on the, on the middle class thing because Smith's reading Camus too. And he's reading 17 seconds, as much as like killing another, as they call it now, they won't use the phrase killing an Arab. Um, as much as that's like a, you know, pastiche of Camus the stranger, 17 Seconds has got Franz Kafka written all fucking over it. At Night is like a, a totally purloined Kafka thing from one of his short story collections. And that's something that's true of, throughout Smith's career. I mean, Charlotte sometimes is a children's book. How Beautiful You Are is a bottle air story. You know, like this, this is something he does. He is fucking glorious at distilling the emotional hangover, the post-sex cigarette of reading a really beautiful emotional uh, vignette or short story. But I, I think that when you look at At Night and the, this overt attempt to inspire horror uh, in that sort of Hammer film way with three, this is, I think, a, a step too far for Smith at this point. I mean, and, and sonically it is too, because I don't know if they're trying to produce some sort of heavy, you know, turgid, Base of doom sound with Simon on the bass on at night, or or the the synth as well. I think is run through a fuzz box, but it just it's not even close. It's so reedy and it's worse live. I mean, whatever effects rigs they were using to achieve this, it sounds like a fart. The song carries itself fine. I like the song, but the production is just completely out of step with the rest of the record, and I just don't think it hangs together. The guitar does, you know, it's just that that, that want for another noise. You know, the, I think the record is so templatized um, and so uniform sonically that you, of course you want to break away from that or have something fresher or different.
why did the cure go to Australia, New Zealand, and America, and not saturate Europe and England on the 17 Seconds tour? Because that's what the police did. Chris Perry is totally following Miles Copeland's playbook, which is the British press is too toxic right now. They're too in control of what's cool and not cool, which is how you get shit like the pop group getting thrown at you. The public is having their say. The public loves Gary Newman. The public loves, you know, fucking Blondie. You know, Heart of Glass is out at this time. Parallel Lines is massive. But indie bands like The Cure, bands that are new, were, were getting beat up by the press. And it was, relatively speaking, it was pretty unfair. I mean, they got absolutely slated on three imaginary boards. So the best they were going to get on 17 seconds is a, well, this is a step in the right direction, lads. Uh, or they were going to get beat up again for being ponderous and pretentious and having this blurry fucking Brian Eno cover, you know, on a fucking pop album. Like, who do you think you are? None of this supports your, your bullshit anti-image obstinance and, and, and pretentiousness. So why would you want to deal with that? Get the fuck out. Just go. And they did. And they had... I, probably, I would imagine this was the most fun Robert Smith ever had in his life. He never liked touring to begin with. Um, going down to Australia and New Zealand, any band that takes on that task, the, the strategic and, and organizational pain of trying to mount a tour in Australia and New Zealand is going to be embraced. You will never be forgotten. You will always be an adopted son of those communities for having uh, done that for them. And it worked out great. He got him out of it. He got him away from the UK. He uh, totally broadened their horizons. These guys have never fucking been anywhere. You know, they got over to America. Um, they played with Mission of Burma here in Boston. That show has since been found. Some aspiring filmmaker, video guy, uh, I think at MIT, was filming it in a three-camera setup to play around with color mapping. And someone found it, I think, five or six years ago, and it's up on YouTube. And it's, that's actually the cure opening for Mission of Burma. They had a good time. I asked him about it, and when I interviewed Lowell Tolhurst, you know, not that long ago when his book Cured came out, uh, he actually seized on that too, and he was like, we really love those guys because they weren't full of shit. You know, they didn't have airs. They weren't competitive. They were just, like, the body of the work you do, the music you're making is what speaks for you, and that's what I judge you on because I'm a musician and, or a music fan too. And the music you're making is good. It's not bullshit. It's not, you know, it's not of the moment. You're not skinny tie bands. You're not going out, you know what I mean? But, I, you know, the reason I go in on that is that there was an infamous incident after they played in Boston. They don't know anything about American roads and everything back then is you're reading a map. They ended up getting lost and getting stuck on the Route 44 rotary. And I know this because it's the only rotary in Massachusetts in 1980. <laughs> there was no other place they could have been. So there's a rotary that connects uh, US 495 and US 44, which is about 10 minutes from my house. And they ended up driving the wrong way around it. And they were so tired and like probably half drunk. And they just like started screwing around and hanging out the car and shit. And I guess the hubcap or the something fell off the car. And they went to fix it, and Smith ended up fucking his finger up. He, like, smashed his finger. So when they fly back to England to play a forest on top of the pops, look for footage of this. Smith has a giant cast on one of his fingers going up and down the neck of the bridge of his guitar. And that's from kicking his hand underneath the hubcap of the car on the roundabout at 44 West in uh, Taunton, Mass.
What I said before about critics who really want this album to be something maybe more than it is in terms of, you know, when it came out, what it stands for, its obvious, you know, historical significance and endurance. 17 Seconds is name-checked as something to lend you musical sophistication, you know, as often as, as the records that influenced it, as, as you know, Van Morrison, as, as Five Leaves Left by Drake, you know, Smith constantly name-dropped that one, and, of course, Bowie's Low, uh, which had influenced everybody or nobody. It's just critics want to tell you that, including myself, um, that David Bowie's Low was, you know, the most critically important album of the 70s in many respects. I, I'm not so sure about 17 Seconds. To be honest, if you look at what's going on in pop music around mid-1979 to early 1980, when 17 Seconds is, it's recorded, I think, the last week of January in one week, recorded and mixed in one week. And then it's released the day after Robert Smith's 21st birthday, April 22nd, 1980. There's a pragmatic aspect to this that's not really interrogated much by the critics who want to celebrate this record, uh, which is that Gary Newman was the biggest thing in the world. Cars and Our Friends Electric, the two-way army's second album, Replicas, was a monster record. Down in the Park, Our Friends Electric, you know, some some really ponderous, um, awfully obvious synth um, orchestrations, uh, pieces on it. Newman is considered kind of someone to scoff at, right? There's too much image and like bougie sci-fi, you know, futurism fucking crap. I mean, the cover of The Pleasure Principle, the album that Cars is from, he's staring at like a glowing red triangle like it's a fucking Star Trek bad guy or something. It's just so fucking stupid. I mean, as much as I love some of this guy's work, and it, do not get me wrong, the first two-way army album, My Shadow in Vain, Someone's in the House, like, that album is so fucking good and still enduring and rips. It's got an awesome hollow guitar sound. Like, I think about the, the best pieces on Three Imaginary Boys or, like, you know, other really good heavy raw guitar rock in the mid-'70s. And that first two-way Army album has it all and fucking, like, it's all over that. That record is a must-own. And the second record, too, Replicas, despite the huge explosion of synth um, as an overtaking aspect of Newman's career, is also still great. Down in the Park is a total classic. But the reality is that Gary Newman is everywhere. Cars becomes an instant top 10 smash in the United States. It is a global monster, this song, and it never dies. Right at the peak of Britpop, Cars has this second life. It just It's like it never went away. It explodes all over again because of its use in some commercial. And then Basement Jacks sample him for Where's Your Head At? to be thought about in terms of being some disposable one-hit wonder from New Wave, and it, it just isn't. It is such a bigger deal than that, internationally. And, you know, my point in that is, is the synthetic China symbol, the in the chorus. If you listen to Play For Today, I'm sorry. <laughs> like, Play For Today is recorded right, you know, right after 
cars is number one for like three or four weeks or something in the UK. Chris Perry, while Robert Smith has basically told him to fuck off and don't come around the studio, and Hedges has Smith's back. He likes Smith. He thinks he's a canny kid. Um, he loves the idea that Smith is so interested in how this is going to sound. He wants to learn how to do it himself. Like any you know good musician, there's that tension between letting go of your baby and having it be produced you know, and brought into the world by some other person. The influence of mainstream pop is clearly present in the production of A Forest and Play For Today. Despite the fact that these are such original songs, and the choices they made, you know, with the flanging of the cymbals, with um, using these incredibly specific mics to mic all of the drums. Hedges uh, totally isolates every drum so that it, it's, there's nothing else there. And that allows them, you know, and listen, this, there's no question Martin Hannon influenced this. It allows them to create the, a consistent reverb plate and, and shape, room shape, because it's all artificial. Right? Nothing is going to sound any different than anything else because all of the space is being post-affected by reverb units. That's one of the things about this record that is also not really, you know, maybe understood as well, is that it is hugely indebted to the way that Hannett did things, especially on Unknown Pleasures. Just had a totally different outcome and intention. They used the same sort of techniques to arrive at a completely different place. Smith didn't want the reverb to take over and become a wash. He hates wash. As much as when you get to the later records and Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Disintegration, and obviously Wish, which is the biggest mess of just sound bleed and wash, up to that point, his use of effects is extremely specific, which is why they stand out so much, which is why The Cure is so associated with you know chorus effects on the guitars um, and a little bit of reverb. It, it's a very specific thing, and he wants it to stand out. The way you get it to stand out is to not overdo it with the other instruments. Play for Today has a very more neutral, you know, it doesn't fall victim to that kind of sci-fi, you know, new wave bullshit that I was talking about with, with a Gary Newman song. Play for Today is very taut and, uh, and tight. And, and the reverb that you get from using that heavy gauge jazz master and so aggressively downstroking those bar chords, it seems like, as I said before, a learn to play guitar situation because so much of it is classic bar chords. It's the way he plays it because he is actually a very technically accomplished guitarist that creates that subtle distinction, that makes 17 seconds sound so different. You couple Hedge's you know, technical excitement, he's still a very young producer. He's still very experimental and up for anything. You, know, you couple that with, with Smith and his obsessiveness, what he wants to hear. And the end result is, is really unique. It, it still holds together today. Nothing sounds like this record. 